Welcome to episode 6 of Development Drums, a podcast about international development and global poverty. Today we're talking about the implications of the US elections for US foreign assistance and policies towards developing countries. I'm joined on the line from Washington DC by Paul O'Brien from Oxfam America. Paul, good morning. Good morning. And from the suburbs of Washington, we've got Ruth Levine from the Center for Global Development, a Washington think tank. Good morning. Well, it's been a dramatic week in US politics with the election of Barack Obama to be the 44th president. Here in Africa, Obama's selection has been greeted with something verging on hysteria, including the declaration of a public holiday in Kenya. In this edition of Development Drums, we'll be looking at what the election of Barack Obama means for developing countries. Let's look first at what the new administration is inheriting. The United States is the world's largest donor of foreign aid, providing around $26 billion a year, about a quarter of global aid, to about 120 countries. It provides programs in a range of sectors, such as agriculture, health, education, infrastructure, aids, governance, and humanitarian assistance during emergencies. The money from the US taxpayer is used to support not only governments, but also non-governmental agencies, faith-based organizations, advocacy groups, and private businesses. Though the US is the largest donor in dollar terms, as a share of national income, the US gives just 0.22% of GDP in foreign aid, which puts it second to last among the industrialized countries. It's spread across 20 different government agencies. Allocations to organizations, to sectors, and to countries are governed by congressional funding earmarks and driven by presidential initiatives. USAID, which is probably the best known of the government foreign assistance agencies, counts for less than 40% of US foreign aid. More than 20% is now managed by the Department of Defense, a budget line that's grown spectacularly as aid has been used in support of global security interests. So, what, how, how does this kind of structure impact on developing countries at the moment? Paul, do you want to kick us off? Uh, sure. Well, I, I think the challenges come in three forms. I think we have a real challenge over here in answering the question, why are we doing foreign aid in the first place? Uh, and I think the, probably the most immediate challenge on that front is this securitization of aid that we've witnessed over uh, the course of the Bush administration, where you've seen um, aid increasingly being used to achieve short-term U.S.-oriented uh, political and security goals to some extent at the expense of long-term developmental goals. The second challenge is, um, and, and your, the, your outline alluded to this, the need to modernize the entire structure of U.S. foreign assistance, which was really designed for a different set of challenges and, uh, and needs wholesale reform. The third set of challenges is, a, is around the way that U.S. aid is implemented, uh, U.S. foreign assistance is implemented on the ground. Uh, the, the sort of what, what do they think uh, good development looks like? And, and once they've made the, the decision on what that is, how to implement it. So I, I, I put it into sort of three buckets of challenges, purpose, mechanisms, and then implementation. Ruth. I agree very much with the way Paul characterized what's gone on in the U.S. and what some of the core challenges are. At the same time, there are tendencies under the Bush administration. So on the one hand, we see 
a closer association of aid with security and strategic interests, say through the increase in aid in Afghanistan. But on the other hand, we see some programs that emerged during the Bush administration, like the Millennium Challenge Corporation and uh, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, that are actually more uh, separate from strategic interests than we saw in the aid program under the Clinton administration, uh, with PEPFAR being oriented toward countries that have relatively high AIDS burdens, the MCC spending money on countries that have relatively good uh, governance. Um, so I think it's not, it's not as it's not an easy story to characterize in a in a simple way. Maybe I could just uh, add briefly assistance that that a huge challenge, which is the the business side of things. So in the U.S., technical assistance providers, the consultants, and uh, whether they're for profit or in NGOs, operate sort of as a protected industry uh, because the U.S. still ties its aid and. These are the groups that tend to be generating, um, tend to be advocating for aid in particular sectors, often are the sources of the most education, housing, uh, financial access problems are. So there are real um, problems with uh, just the business of aid in the U.S., Let's focus specifically on this question of, um, I think Paul used the word securitization, which uh, to me as an economist means something else completely, but this notion of using aid in pursuit of global security interests. Ruth, you're saying that in addition to that, the Bush administration has done other important things uh, like PEPFAR and the MCA, and let's, let's come back to those. Uh, I reckon there'd be lots of people out there who think that using aid in support of your security agenda to spend money on things like rebuilding Iraq and Afghanistan is a good thing to do with aid money. What, wh why, why are we saying that that's a, a challenge rather than a success? Well, um, I, I, this is a real debate over here, and it's going to be particularly challenging for um, the Obama administration uh, on how it frames this, because, uh, you know, the, the traditional saying is that a new Democratic president has to prove they're tough on security. Um, it, the U.S. feels, I think, that they are in, in a particular situation. Uh, they, they don't have the luxury of being a boutique donor who can focus exclusively on um, a, a purely um, altruistic developmental agenda. As the world's uh, last superpower, they've got to think about uh, global security issues in ways that others don't, global economic issues. They've got to think about the national interest. And then you compound that with uh, groups in Congress um, who are very skeptical about whether aid actually achieves anything meaningful on the ground. And you have very strong incentives to justify um, expenditures on U.S. foreign assistance in terms of U.S. national security interests. The debate is really between those – nobody says, you know, you've got to completely divorce the two issues, U.S. security on the one hand and global development needs on the other. The real debate is between folks who say, look, the only way we're ever going to do development well is if we take an enlightened self-interest approach and we say that unless we can effectively focus on helping states become more stable, more peaceful, more prosperous for their own sake, we're never actually going to get that security dividend that we need over, over here. 
There are others who are just skeptical that you'll ever actually achieve that longer term developmental agenda. And so they default to, well, if we can't get that, let's at least make sure we're winning over hearts and minds this year and um, ensuring force protection and gathering the kinds of intelligence that we need for our short term security agenda. So that's the real debate. And what I think we're hoping to see from Obama is that that he understands the tension between the shorter and longer term agenda. And we've certainly seen in broader rhetoric uh, a leaning towards um, really taking an enlightened self-interest perspective. But to be honest, we haven't seen the kind of concrete commitments that, that demonstrate he's made that choice. I, I think that's right. I think that uh, it's very much uh, uh, that when you leave particular current strategic goals through development assistance, you tend to focus on sectors and programs that are different than you would if you had that longer-term uh, developmental agenda where your aim is to improve the lives and livelihoods of people who otherwise wouldn't have a particular set of opportunities so that their countries become over time more stable, more prosperous, better able to engage in the global economy and in constructive dialogue with other countries. But So there, what you're both saying is that the, the trade-off is as much between whether you do short-term assistance that is designed to um, uh, help people in the particular circumstances they're in, but not necessarily to build capacity in institutions, and taking a longer-term view about the good that uh, you could use your resources for. So it's, it's not so much a security versus non-security choice there. It's, it's more to do with whether your uh, interventions are long-term in character. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think sometimes what is um, done under the objective of responding to strategic or security interests is really just using financial transfers to reward leaders who, at that moment, we are you know, we find it convenient to uh, to be friends with. And that generally doesn't lead to the best kind, the most effective kind of development programs. Let's move on to your, your other point, Ruth, and uh, about uh, the credit you were giving to the administration, the outgoing administration, for the work that it's done in setting up, for example, PEPFAR. Now, there's been a huge increase in funding, um, a massive increase in aid in the Bush administration compared to, say, the Clinton administration. Um, but criticism of PEPFAR is that it's, it's a silo, that it, it comes as a vertically integrated program. And that in the famous example is Rwanda, where there's a huge amount of funding that is only for HIV AIDS in a country whose broader health problems need funding. Uh, and, and that because PEPFAR doesn't integrate with the rest of the international aid system as well as it could, um, that this actually leads to the money being used less effectively on the ground. And that's perhaps a, an egregious example of something we see a lot in the health sector with all these different vertical funds, uh, the Global Fund for AIDS, TB and Malaria, the Gavi for, for vaccinations, and tens of other organizations. Do you think that, that setting up the PEPFAR ha has been basically a success? Well, I have no idea if it's been a success or not because the, uh, the metrics and measurement uh, that you might associate with good evaluation of 
know whether they just haven't been part of PEPFAR. So, uh, you know, in terms of getting money out the door and achieving particular performance targets like increasing the number of trained health workers or even the number of uh, people who are alive today because of the antiretroviral drugs provided by the U.S. Yes, in, in those terms, I think there are, there are um, you know, really clear attributable successes that PEPFAR can claim. I think it's also been, you know, seen as a disruption because it's uh, introduced so much money earmarked for a particular health problem, which may not, as in the case of Rwanda, be the anything close to the major source of uh, uh, death and disability among people. But you know, you, you brought up Rwanda, and I think it's a great example because the government of Rwanda has been extremely aggressive about corralling all of its donor friends, whether PEPFAR, the Global Fund, the bilateral, uh, pro the other bilateral uh, programs from Europeans, corralling those donors and their resources and saying, look, we have one plan in this country, and it is to respond to our AIDS problem, and it is also to respond to the many other health problems we have and develop new ways of financing and delivering health care services broadly. And so, you know, if you look at Rwanda, it's actually been very successful. In so are you optimistic that the, the, the infrastructure that we have of all these different uh, funding channels with a sufficiently strong and activist government can be made to work? Um, Rwanda might be a special case. Yeah, I think Rwanda is definitely a special case, and very few governments have taken the lead in terms of telling the donors what what the national priorities are. So I do think there's a need for uh, the categorical or vertical programs to be much more flexible in how resources can be used and to be aware of how disruptive they can be. But the fact is, due to the sort of political economy of the situation, we wouldn't have $15 billion and now $48 billion for global health if it weren't labeled as HIV AIDS. That's where the advocacy has been. That's where the political constituency is. So it's not, you know, how, how should we orient $48 billion? It's given that we've raised $48 billion for these sorts of programs, how can we spend it for broader benefit? Paul? I agree strongly with what Ruth said. Um, we, we're doing these field reports where we go out and we look at how U.S. foreign aid is being spent in different countries. Our team just got back from Mozambique and published a report. 2002, um, Mozambique was getting somewhere in the range of about $55 million um, aggregate from U.S. foreign assistance. With the advent of PEPFAR, which really got going properly in 2005, it, it now, you know, add that and MCC together, they're, they're going to get something in the range of $350 million next year. So a sevenfold increase. But the bulk of it is PEPFAR. Um, we're very concerned that, you know, PEPFAR's sort of political advantage is that it's very measurable in, in, in ways that Congress uh, likes and therefore we're sort of rewarding the dysfunctionality of the earmark system which at some level focuses heavily on inputs 
and outputs rather than the longer term and harder to measure outcomes and impacts, um, numbers of people served, uh, uh, ARVs uh, distributed, and so on. But when we actually got to the field in Mozambique, and this resonates with what Ruth said, you know, it does get a little bit more complicated because you've got recipient country governments who are savvy about what's coming at them, and obviously in different respects. And in the Mozambique case, we, we found the Mozambican Ministry of Health saying, we're finding ways to use PEPFAR funding for stuff other than uh, HIV AIDS. Um, we, they've been able to fund, we found a couple of government clinics that were providing broader services. Healthcare workers were being given permission to, to say, okay, if HIV AIDS is the symptom, what's the health cause and use some um, PEPFAR funding in those respects. Now, I, I'm not saying that there's no dysfunctionality. I'm just saying that it gets a little bit more complicated for practitioners on the ground. Let's, let's broaden this to the, to the bigger question of the fact that uh, USAID has so many different government agencies uh, responsible in, in the US. It's it's more, I think there are 26 agencies giving uh, money that counts as overseas development assistance. Is that a problem for people on the ground and is it a problem in the US? Or is, is it perfectly sensible to have the different parts of government that are expert in their areas to be delivering foreign assistance to people who need it? Well, I think it's uh, a huge problem. It's a huge problem in the US and I suspect it's even a much bigger problem on the ground where the US through its own uh, chaos and lack of coordination uh, in at least some settings where it has big investments from multiple agencies, uh, then just adds to the confusion that's created by the fragmentation of aid across the multilateral grams. A uh, specific example, I couldn't agree more. A specific example of how this plays out. Um, I spent the last few years before I came back here, and, and partly the inspiration for this, um, working uh, as an advisor to the Afghan government, paid by the U.S. government to help try and bring greater coordination, coherence to the aid that they were receiving. Um, it was fairly challenging dealing with the various different donors and getting them to harmonize their aid around an Afghan-led strategy. But perhaps even more challenging was dealing with the various arms of the U.S. government um, who uh, you know, we over 50% of the funds was coming from the U.S. in one way or another, um, and I'm talking the development funds. Uh, we were dealing with eight different departments of the U.S. government. So, you know, you had the State Department, which had U.S. aid as a subsidiary of that, but we had eight different departments, including the departments of defense and labor and education. I remember uh, we dealt with Treasury. And uh, we had... We had no overarching national development strategy of the U.S. So USAID would have its strategy um, and other departments would have their development strategies. Over time, we did work with the leadership of uh, a particular ambassador, but he had no um, – there, there was no overall U.S. policy that you have to have one national strategy in every country. So this was really the actions of individuals on the ground who, of course, transitioned in and transitioned out. Um, on fairly regular occasions. So uh, for the most part, you had no overall strategy bringing those different departments together. So it became a major incentive of the Afghan government to sit down with the various parts of the U.S. government and try and bring greater coherence to this. And obviously, you know, with the U.S. government having such a strong agenda in Afghanistan and being such a generous donor, 
the dynamic on who was leading who there was often uh, very blurred. Um, but this was a consequence of the fact that back in D.C., we have a structure where uh, there are entirely, entirely distinct stovepipes for making decisions around what priorities are in these different agencies. And so when they go out to the field, those stovepipe problems manifest themselves. It, do, it does seem strange to me that a country that I think has rightly given a lot of emphasis to uh, improving the effectiveness of aid and talking more about the output and impact than I think a lot of other donors have, persist with an organizational structure that almost everybody thinks is results in much less effective aid than if it was better joined up and more coordinated. This is driven, is it, by internal politics within Washington, D.C.? Let me jump in quickly because I think this is a particular challenge for the Obama administration. Absolutely, it's a massive political challenge. There are, you know, it, <clears throat> there are political reasons why we have the system that we have, and there are stakeholders who now have strong interests in preserving different parts of the status quo. If you're the Obama administration, you have a certain amount of foreign policy capital and a certain number of priorities that you've got to get through Congress. And our challenge as a group of actors who'd like to see foreign aid brought into the 21st century and all of this structure rationalized is not so much winning the argument on what's the right thing to do, but is it sufficiently important to spend the political capital required to bring some greater rationality to all these systems? Or do we get enough um, out of the system that we have to, to deliver um, a suboptimal uh, development agenda without spending all the political capital. And that's a huge challenge for us now. I think Paul is a thousand percent right about that. And when you think about what uh, the incoming president has on his plate, and just to take health care reform as the sort of one, one of the preeminent examples of a complex challenge where he's going to have to deal with multiple interest groups and expend a, a lot of political capital. I think it really is very much an open question whether rationalizing, making coherent the foreign assistance agenda is going to be something that's, uh, that's high on the priority list to tackle. I certainly hope it is, but at the same time, I, I think that realistically, uh, it maybe the first couple of years more of an incremental approach and one that's more centered in discussions in Congress where, frankly, a lot of what you might characterize as the bad behavior begins uh, with the earmarking and the responsiveness to particular uh, interest groups. I have to say, sitting from here, if this issue feels to me a lot like the issue of um, gays in the military that Clinton tackled early on in his first term. Uh, and I kind of feel that the, the, the political will isn't going to be there in the Obama team or indeed in the U.S. political life to put this high up the agenda. I think there's a, one interesting distinction between the gays in the military uh, question and the foreign aid question, which is that the former, the former issue was a stark moral challenge which could be easily characterized in terms of the, the decision-making dilemma. It's not necessarily the case that the foreign aid challenge um, is going to get simplified into a straightforward uh, moral or political dilemma. The, and, and frankly, that's a big issue for us. When, when we have sort of canvassed the Obama 
advisors, the, the folks on the campaign staff who cared about foreign aid, one of the interesting things, bits of information that we got back that gave us hope was that the way that Obama and his senior advisors like to tackle problems is to get back to core principles, to a big picture question. What are we trying to do here and work back from that towards an end goal. The point being, they like strategy and they like to think strategically rather than tactically. And unfortunately, if we don't get that kind of uh, the, the, the bigger step back, um, it's too easy to try and deal with this problem. And for 40 years, we've been trying to deal with this problem in piecemeal ways. Our only hope is that we get a president who decides to take the bigger picture question on what is the U.S. trying to do in the world and how do we use the various tools at our disposal to achieve our broader foreign policy goals. If he doesn't ask that question and doesn't see foreign aid as an essential tool to that, it's very unlikely that we're going to see enough political momentum for reform. Ruth? I certainly agree with that. I think that there are a couple of uh, additional points um, to raise that might give us some optimism about the potential for change sometime in the next four years is that Vice President-elect Joe Biden is heavily engaged in, in this question. He's very knowledgeable about it and so potentially can really move the agenda ahead. The second is that a coalition or network of leading organizations advocacy organizations, implementing groups, and others have been working now for a long time to develop uh, sort of core principles for reform and now not a blueprint but uh, a bit more detail around what those reforms could look like. And so there's been a, a coalition uh, called the Modernizing Foreign Assistance Network that's grown and that has really produced a lot of consensus among leading actors. So if and when um, hopefully when uh, there's a moment that, as, as Paul describes, when they, they really tackle this broad question of where does foreign assistance fit into a really comprehensive view of U.S. engagement in the world. So let, let's try and summarize exactly what those, what, for example, the Modernizing Foreign Assistance Network has come up with. What are the broad outlines of, of the agenda for change? We, uh, we were one of the the four founding uh, members of the Modernizing Foreign Assistance Network, along with uh, Root's uh, organization, the Center for Global Development um, staff from uh, Brookings and the Center for American Progress. Uh, the four key principles um, that's, uh, that really uh, focus the work of what we call MFAN, which is a horrible acronym, um, are one... Um, we're going to well. Let's let's talk about them in terms of priority actions. Actually, the, the, the specific proposals that we'd like to see uh, implemented. Um, one, uh, we need a national development strategy that brings together um, the work of the various agencies uh, under a clear set of strategic goals and objectives. Two, we need um, to rationalize the structural authorities to implement that strategy. Um, three, we're going to need to bring our legislation, and particularly the Foreign Assistance Act, which was written in 1961 and designed to fight the challenges of the Cold War, into the 21st century with a new act um, that provides the legislative structure and authority to do uh, 21st century development. And four, we need uh, the kinds of resources and capacity so that we can operationalize um, the law, structure, and strategy 
with effective development uh, on the ground. And, and that's, yes, we care very much about preserving and increasing the, the, the resources for development along the lines that uh, uh, now President-elect Obama has talked about. But we're also talking about helping to rebuild the capacity um, of our development professionals to do um, to do work on the ground. We, we simply don't have enough um, full-time development professionals in the foreign, uh, the U.S. foreign assistance structure uh, to, to, to do uh, effective development. Part of my worry listening to that description is that it sounds like a very inside-the-beltway set of reforms. This is all about you know, hiring more people for USAID. It's about changing some legislation on the Hill. It, it doesn't sound like the kind of thing that is going to inspire and motivate people to take on the, the politics of this. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's quite a technocratic agenda, isn't it? Uh, you're spot on, Owen, with that question. You, we, interestingly, we were sitting around in an MFAN meeting yesterday uh, modernizing Foreign Assistance Network, asking that very question and recognizing that we need to build a broader constituency because our real challenge is not really convincing policymakers of the soundness of our arguments, but convincing them that it's got enough political importance. Um, we need key constituencies to engage on this. The shameless plea to your audience, the one we talked about most yesterday, is that there are development professionals out there who are seeing the consequences of our lack of strategy, structure, and law being coherent and modern on the ground. And we need them to feed back into um, their agencies, into the political discussion back here by engaging with the Modernizing Foreign Assistance Network um, and with organizations like Oxfam. Both of us have websites. If you Google those, you'll, you'll, you'll see pleas for, um, t to take action and ways to do so. Um, because in the end of the day, um, the, the real calculus on whether this moves forward may be based on, on what level of noise is generated around the need to do that on the basis that until there's enough urgency, it's just not going to get onto the agenda. I, I think that's exactly right. I, I think that there are these two tracks that the policy work has to go down. One is building this broad base of understanding that reform is vital for a lot of uh, a lot of objectives, both self-interested ones and uh, and much broader and maybe somewhat more altruistic ones. Um, but at the same time, this what, what you characterized rightly, Owen, as the inside the beltway ideas and work really have to proceed because if if you inspire uh, sort of action, oh, we, we need reform, and you don't have um, a, a plan that's been you know well appropriated by the key actors in in place to off could easily stall out or worse go in the wrong direction so i think you need these two tracks the kind of you know detailed policy work which agency could do what what would be the relationship what's the boring to 99.9 percent .9 of americans uh you need that to continue while you sort of raise the volume and raise visibility of the broader issues One of the choices that the new administration will face is whether and how to reverse the so-called global gag rule, which prohibits US funding from going to organizations that advocate a woman's right to choose abortion. 
We're joined today by Dana Hovey, the Chief Executive of Mary Stokes International, which is one of the largest international family planning organisations in the world. Last year, Mary Stokes International provided over 5 million people in 40 countries with high-quality health services, including family planning, safe abortion and post-abortion care, maternal and child health care, including safe delivery and obstetrics, diagnosis and treatment of sexually transmitted infections. Dana, thank you for coming on to Development Drums. Great. Thank you, Owen. Before I ask you to explain what the global gag rule means in practice, let's first hear from that incontrovertible authority on American politics, the TV series The West Wing. Here is a scene in which the incomparable Stockard Channing, as First Lady, tackles Martin Sheen as President Bartlett over breakfast about the gag rule. It's not that the money can't go to clinics that perform abortions. It's that it can't go to clinics that talk about abortion. I know what the gag rule is. I wasn't reminding you what the gag rule was. I was reminding you that you sent 11,000 U.S. troops to Kundu because on your inauguration, you told us that we were for freedom of speech everywhere. That's great, except people are starving to death, and they're dying of disease to death, and they can't cook the Bill of Rights. So we're for freedom of speech everywhere, but poor countries, where they can have our help, but only if they live up to Clancy Bangert's moral standards? What the hell kind of free world are you running? I really don't know, Abby. The day hasn't started yet. Dana, tell us what the global gag rule says. The global gag rule started with Ronald Reagan in 1984. Uh, Bill Clinton rescinded it in 1993, but then it was reinstated uh, in 2001 by President Bush. And effectively, it means that non-U.S. NGOs uh, cannot uh, counsel for abortion, refer for abortion, or advocate for abortion, uh, and still be uh, uh, get money from the U.S. government for family planning or contraceptive supplies. So how does that rule affect your work? Well, it, it, I think it's telling and and uh, well, arguably ironic that this doesn't apply to U.S. organizations. The global gag rule only applies to foreign organizations such as Mary Stopes International uh, because it's been found to be unconstitutional. Uh, the global gag rule is unconstitutional, and the Constitution only protects uh, U.S. citizens and U.S. organizations because it, the global gag rule restricts the right to free speech. USAID has recently taken steps to prevent contraceptive supplies that they finance from being channeled through Mary Stopes. What reason have they given for that? Uh, USAID and, and in fact the Department of State found that, uh, uh, that just like UNFPA, Mary Stopes International works in China and we support the Chinese government to try to help the Chinese government become much more focused on women's reproductive rights and, and fo focused on choice. So actually we are good guys in China trying to help the Chinese family planning uh, uh, movement to evolve. Instead of uh, labeling us as good guys, though, uh, the U USAID has labeled us, like UNFPA, as tarnished by our work in China. And therefore, what they've done is they've stopped or tried to stop all contraceptives being supplied to Mary Stopes International in six countries in Africa. And this is, in fact, infecting Mary Stopes International's ability to work around the world because governments now, host governments, African governments, are wary of giving any sort of contraceptive to, to Mary Stopes International. So this action has been taken under the so-called Kemp-Caston Amendment, which says that money can't be used for any organization that supports a program of coercive abortion. 
Are you supporting coercive abortion in China? Not at all. In fact, it's just the opposite. We are trying to, to empower women and empower their reproductive rights in China and elsewhere. And it's, it's ironic that, that uh, the Bush administration punishes UNFPA and punishes MSI uh, um, for doing the right thing in China. And they punish us um, so that we can't do the right thing in Africa. UNFPA just estimated that the $34 million that the U.S. government uh, um, wouldn't give them this year because of Kemp Kasten uh, will result in 2 million unwanted pregnancies and 800,000 uh, abortions happening. That's what they could do with that U.S. government money. Similarly, uh, if the U.S. government was able or wanted to give MSI an IUD, that would prevent two abortions from happening in Africa. So they're punishing African women. They're increasing uh, abortion in Africa, and they're increasing uh, um, the number of women who will die from unsafe abortion because of this uh, crazy policy, Kemp Kasten and our association trying to do the right thing in China. Do you have any sense of why USAID has taken this step now in the dying days of the Bush administration? We uh, we wonder that ourselves. This has been cooking for several months, and we think it's just a a, a, a last bone to the right wing uh, before the sun sets on this administration. This administration, which through the gag rule, which through its abstinence-only funding, and, and through Kemp Kasten, we think has uh, um, uh, caused the deaths of of many women unnecessarily. Dana Hovig from Mary Stips International. Thanks very much for joining us on Development Drums. Thank you, Owen. Ruth, Clinton abolished the gag rule on his first day in office and George Bush reimposed it on his first day in office. Do you think President-elect Obama will abolish the gag rule on his first day? I did a little bit of checking around among informed sources about whether it's likely that uh, President Obama will issue an executive order and I don't know, re-reverse uh, the uh, Mexico City policy or the gag rule on day one. And uh, among the people I talked to, there were maybe one or two who thought it was possible. Uh, no, So I guess going with that little mini poll, non-scientific, I'd say it's probably not too likely. Why did Clinton do it on his first day in office? Was there a, was there a lobby for it? There was indeed. And there isn't now. I don't think there's as strong a lobby. I, I, I sensed um, partly because the whole sort of culture wars, values discussion really fell by the the wayside during the latter part of uh, this presidential campaign, particularly as the concerns about the uh, economy picked up. He would essentially part company with the Bush administration around what's fundamentally seen in the U.S. as a values question. I, I don't think that's going to be where he's going to put his symbolic marbles. That's the limited we're hearing in the rumor mill that that resonates. So what what do we think will be at the top of the Obama intray on the development field? We've talked a bit about the need for um, some kind of reform of foreign assistance. And I think everyone's saying that this might not be the first thing that he gets to, and there might be some, some build-up of momentum towards it in Congress. Um, he has said that he will uh, increase foreign assistance in money terms, although Joe Biden seemed to um, uh, mark that out as a, as a possible uh, victim if the administration needs to look for savings as a result of the financial crisis. Um, 
what 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 do you think he might do that would uh throw some um comfort to people who are concerned about this in the early days of a new administration we we're actually cautiously optimistic um Certainly in terms of his broader rhetoric, he fully understands that if the U.S. is going to exercise what many in Washington call smart power in the world that balances hard and soft power tools effectively, you're going to need to be able to do smart development and that that area of our foreign policy uh, armory, for want of a better term, is has been under uh, under-resourced and under-attended to in recent times. So the rhetoric is all there in broad policy strokes. The question is, is um, when he said, you know, because of the financial crisis, um, we're going to, we may have to delay um, some of our commitments. And he actually was the first to say it. He got halfway cut off in a television interview and Biden the next night sort of finished the sentence. But we all knew where it was going because before the presenter cut him off on the, what's a, a program over here called This Week, Obama said, I may have to cut something, for example, foreign aid, and then it got cut. Yeah. And the next day, unfortunately, we heard the rest of the bad news. So we know that it's on their minds. But the way that we have understood that is that the Obama administration fully understands that the economic crisis is going to be a short to medium term uh, budgetary crisis in the sense that uh, money invested now is going to need, it will ultimately get paid back later, but is not going to get invested. I mean, people, people need to remember that, you know, out of, for example, uh, the, the Mexico bailout, uh, the U.S. government actually made a profit in the end of the day. And so there, there is a mindset over here that this may not be a sort of a permanent loss of public funds. And so we, at some level, being optimistic, take the delay uh, commitment uh, at its, on its face um, and that he's still fully committed to doubling U.S. foreign assistance over the course of his first term and to achieving the Millennium Development Goals. Our bigger question is, you know, around this, does he, how important does he see um, these, these, this kind of soft, soft power tool uh, development um, in his overall foreign policy agenda? And if he can get his head around that and articulate some strong first principles around that, more, even more than he has done, um, we're optimistic that this may be the best chance for reform that we've seen since the Kennedy administration. Ruth, that doesn't sound to me, uh, if, if we're not going to get much in, in, in the form of administrative reform, not much increase in money yet, although that may come, the best we can hope for is some rhetoric that development is a central part of a foreign policy strategy. That doesn't sound like anything is going to change much on the ground uh, as seen from people working in developing countries. I think it's going to be a while before, um, you know, the, the sort of whatever change is motivated and implemented in Washington filter signals from the administration about what direction they want to go in um, and what priority they place on these issues. One is, I think as Paul was saying, I think rhetorically there'll be a lot more expression of commitment to the Millennium Development Goals and to multilateral processes, whether it's the UN or um, various kinds of global coordination efforts. You know, the, the U.S. in the past eight years has been 
a real go it alone, my way or the highway kind of uh, taken that posture. Um, And I think Obama is certainly committed to to changing that and has a real opening to do so. And the other way, just briefly, that that he can show where he's headed and where we're all headed is um, by the nature of the appointments to key uh, positions. So if, for example, uh, the various development agencies are, for example, provided with one uh, one head, so bringing, say, MCC, PEPFAR, uh, USAID together. Now they're fragmented, but bring them together under one uh, set of leadership and appointing to that position in the field of development. That would be a dramatic departure. The rumor is that Susan Rice is, is a front runner. Uh, and the other name I've heard bandied around is Gail Smith. The, the, uh, right? Is that what you're hearing? And uh, would those be the kinds of appointments? I think the two people that you have mentioned as possible candidates would be great because they bring together development uh, uh, expertise and an understanding of what it takes to translate that into policy in Washington. Um, so, yes, the, those kinds of candidates um, would be super. And, uh, and uh, we know that both of them have articulated as, you know, an interest in a development agenda and modernizing it over the last few months. We want a candidate who has three characteristics. One, they have direct access to the president based on a personal relationship, meaning uh, a prior relationship. Two, we'd like um, somebody who actually understands development because they've been there or they've committed to it in some way. Um, And three... We want somebody who understands how Washington works. Um, there's been a, a tendency in trying to elevate foreign aid assistance in the past. Kennedy did it, Bush did it, to bring in a tycoon um, and, and bring in that sort of corporate result-oriented experience. And their, their lack of knowledge of Washington and their lack of knowledge of development has undermined those efforts in the past. Um, if you really put me on the spot, though, I'm about to contradict myself and say name one person that might give this the kind of attention uh, you, that you'd like, and I'm speaking personally here, not for Oxfam, I'd say Bill Gates would be a good candidate. Um, now, it slightly contradicts the tycoon point, but the point is, is here's somebody who's going to get access. He spent billions of dollars in the last 10 years trying to get his head around um, uh, development, including spending millions of dollars trying to fix USAID or at least modernize its technology. Um, and he, he, he's demonstrated in some ways an understanding of how Washington works, although that might be his weak point. I'm, uh, I'm impressed by the, uh, by the ambition that you're laying out there. That's re- that really wouldn't be an, an Washington insider. Do you think Bill Gates would take that job? Well, I, I, you know, he's declared that, that, uh, fighting poverty one person at his time is his, now his life's goal. Um, and, uh, I think he probably wouldn't take it because he, he, he has a final time doing that right now as the head of an incredibly well-resourced organization. But the bigger point is, if we don't get that level of attention and political profile, it's going to be challenging. I have to say, I'm, I'm sounding all doom and gloom, but partly, I, I, I am actually, I work on this full-time. I'm actually fairly optimistic that we will get somebody 
who wants to give it some attention, and the President Obama will move from rhetoric to action. Um, there are no signs to the contrary. It's just that the environment is difficult, and we need the attention of folks like your listeners to, to, to build up the drumbeat. I agree. I, I just I think that there are a number of very, very qualified uh, people who you know, have the kind of perspective and development experience that we need to see. The, the last eight years, much of the leadership of the development agencies, you know, a priority was given to people who had sort of executive ability, um, experience in the private sector, and I think it would be very healthy to um, have people in leadership positions who, you know, really have spent a lot of time working in the development field, not captured by it, because I think there are a lot of... Um, you know, a lot of lessons to learn about what hasn't worked, and uh, it's important to have a fresh perspective. But, but you know, real knowledge about the, the challenges on the ground is very important for the leadership. Paul, Ruth, is there anything else that you want to say about um, the, the prospects for an Obama administration, perhaps more broadly than just foreign assistance, like uh, in the field of climate change or trade policy? The Democrats have traditionally not been um, internationalist in some of these areas. Uh, do you think an Obama administration is will be good news in, in other areas of policies that affects developing countries? Well, I think the Obama administration will be very good news in one area, which is on the global climate change, a long commitment to working with other countries, to doing our fair share. Uh, so I think in that really critical and too long neglected area, we, we will, uh, that this country will really emerge uh, a changed nation. Um, in terms of trade, I watched um, much different uh, prospect, at least in the short term, given the economic challenges at home. It's going to be hard to take on an aggressive, you know, uh, trade policy that really looks um, looks first or looks in important ways at the interests of poor countries. Paul? You know, with everything that went on in the campaigns, it's unlikely we're going to see um, President Obama embracing new trade agreements as a tool um, to uh, strengthen uh, U.S. trade policy. That having been said, um, we're hearing very interesting rumors about getting a thoughtful USTR trade representative. And I think what we will see from Obama is a greater understanding of the need for coherence between the trade and the development agenda. It makes no sense for U.S. foreign policy that we charge more in trade tariffs to countries that receive Millennium Challenge Corporation funding which is designed for economic growth, then we give them in um, MCC funding. So at the one hand, we're trying to stimulate economic growth with MCC. At the other hand, we're charging them more in tariffs to the very same countries. That kind of incoherence is something I think the Obama administration is likely to tackle because, it, again, it plays to his strong suit. What are we trying to do broadly and strategically with our soft power tools? And how do we get some, some greater coherence across our, our, our various tools? That brings us to the end of episode six of Development Drums. Thank you to Ruth Levine and Paul O'Brien in Washington and to Dana Hovig from Mary Stokes International in London. And from me, Owen Bader in Addis Ababa, thanks for listening and I hope you'll join us again next time.